Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. All right, this is Keith Lowell Jensen on Keith Lowell Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, and as promised, I am completely fanboying out here beside myself uh, as today I will talk to a couple of my heroes who uh, figured big in my comic book loving childhood, Wendy and Richard Penny. In fact, they're, they're with us now. Hi, how you doing, Wendy and Richard? Hi, Keith. How you doing? We're doing fine. All right. Uh, first, let me uh, tell everyone um, my, my message for this episode is support your local comedy club, okay? Something I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, here in Sacramento, we have an independent, one-location, non-corporate club called the Sacramento Comedy Spot. Uh, we've also got Laughs Unlimited. Sacramento Comedy Spot is kind of my home as far as the, the non-corporate clubs. Um, you probably have a place or two like this in your town uh, with an improv team, some open mic nights, maybe classes. Uh, occasionally, big-name comics play these places because they know that it's cool to play locally owned places and not always go to the corporate place. Um, or maybe they just want to come and do a one nighter, you know? Um, some of these places have alcohol licenses. Some of them don't. Some of them even let you bring your own. I mean, these are weird, quirky, awesome places. And I'm sad to say a lot of these places will not survive the pandemic. That's just a fact. I've seen some of them close already. Uh, Sacramento is lucky we've held on to ours so far. Um, so I just want to take a minute to ask you to help make sure that we have these places that are such an awesome, magical part of a community when we come back from this COVID vacation. <laughs> mm. And the way that you can help is, is easy. You pour yourself a drink, pop some popcorn and uh, treat yourself to some online content. They've got live shows, podcasts. Uh, they're doing things on the camcorder. Everyone's getting so creative. In fact, the last episode of this show, I was interviewing Greg Proops. That was set up by a different local comedy club, The Punchline. Um, they're all doing stuff that you can go and consume and give them money. And that's what they need right now is some money. They, some of them have Patreon. Um, and look, and if you don't have much, I get it. Because the pandemic is affecting all of us differently. And a lot of us are broke. But go give them a buck. Give them a dollar and then be a good audience member because that is also super valuable. All right? So do that and I'll be super happy. And uh, here we are. I am sitting – God, this is a weird age. I'm sitting at my <laughs> kitchen table and I'm about to talk to Wendy and Richard Penny. Uh, Wendy, Richard, hello. Hello. Hello to you. And we are sitting here in my studio how many times tonight have you refreshed the news or 538.com or whatever you use to Countless. find out who's president? Countless times. She, <laughs> she does it more than I do. I, I, I have this uh, uh, um, patience that says nothing is going to happen quickly. And <laughs> therefore, I will miss it when it happens. Well, right. what motivates? What motivates me is I like to keep up with what my friends are saying. There's a there's a whole bunch of us that are just uh, sitting here on tenterhooks and biting our nails, and I like I like to check in on them and see how they're doing. What a, what a weird thing that you know one guy is uh, five million votes up, and we're all still biting our nails. I know <laughs> democracy. I know. 
Um, well, yeah, but the the theater, I mean, especially with uh, tonight's press conference from you oh know my who, God. was uh, and and Anderson Cooper's <laughs> response to it. Uh, I believe he called him uh, an obese turtle on his an back. An obese turtle lying on sun. his back, flailing about in the hot sun, realizing his time <laughs> is over. I mean, that was sheer poetry. I don't normally go very topical on this show, mm. um, but I did right now for two reasons. One is, how can we not? I mean, <laughs> it, it's going to affect the the state of mind that I'm in and that you guys are in. I, I even wrote Richard earlier to say, hey, how are you feeling about tonight? Because uh, if you would have said, uh, like not doing a podcast, I would have said, no problem. I get it. Um, although I am glad that I get to talk about comic books for an hour uh, and have a break <laughs> from stressing. Well, and comic books are always topical. Co- comic Amen. books always reflect what's going on. The other reason is that, Wendy, you have been outspoken politically. Um <laughs> You've gotten some flack for it. I've loved your response. Um, what what has this election cycle been for you as far as fan interaction? Fan? Well, I don't in, interact with the fans politically. The ElfQuest fans, uh, you know, we we tend to keep the world of ElfQuest very separate from our our personal lives and our personal activities. So I'm uh, thinking of people I see you interact with on Facebook, but you're a little sure. pickier then about who you're interact. That that that's not fans. When you no. have add a friend on Facebook, it's an actual friend. No, it's an actual friend. Most okay. most of the people on my friends list are people from the comics industry or the arts and theater. And uh, I do have some fans, but but they're the ones I trust. Gotcha. Uh, generally speaking, though, uh, you know, we tend to keep our personal lives in a separate uh, box. <laughs> but as far as my political activism, I've hated Donald Trump well before he became president. I, I hated before him. Before he was every- a candidate. Oh, uh, well. Oh, you know, we've we've lived in New York right. for a long time, and he's been a presence there. I can remember uh, uh, go between uh, between him and Ed Koch for crying out loud when oh, yeah. when he was mayor, and uh, nothing has changed. It's only gotten worse. It's gotten worse. But I started actively hating him when he said those awful things about his daughter. Yeah. on the Howard Stern show. And then uh, later on, he uh, did several television interviews where he said even worse things. And uh, I just decided, you know, he was lower than scum. So uh, when he became president, uh, I decided that there were two things I could do. I could either go in, into shock and into hiding, or I could become I could become active about it and do what I could and and uh, speak up against the injustices and the lies and the narcissism and and so for four years now I've I've just been very very active on Facebook and um, I've really enjoyed uh, especially when people have told me that that my words have given them encouragement or comfort or hope that's meant a lot to me yeah absolutely. <laughs> Uh, have you heard Woody Guthrie's song about Trump's father? No. Oh, you should look it up. If you just Google Woody, everyone listening at home too, Google Woody Guthrie. Uh, I think the song is called Old Man Trump. 
But if you just oh put boy. Woody Guthrie yeah, Trump, it, it will come up. That, that's how long he's been a hated presence in New York. He was a <laughs> Trump senior, was a racist landlord, and he was Woody Guthrie's landlord. Mm-hmm. Woody Guthrie wrote a song about him. I was first introduced to him through comics. Doonesbury. Are, are oh. you guys Doonesbury fans? Absolutely. Oh, heavens. How, how can you not be, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Trudeau was was depicting Donald in all of his uh, obnoxiousness very early on. I remember not only had, that, but he predicted that Trump would be president. He would he did several fantasy strips in which <laughs> he was president. <laughs> yeah. Between him and the Simpsons, yeah. I love he has one book about Trump called uh, "Give Those Nymphs Some Hooters," which is uh, <laughs> Trump directing people as they paint a Sistine Chapel type ceiling on his uh, yacht. Oh, Lord, I remember that. I remember that when it came out. Uh, yeah, long, long before being a candidate, you know, was oh, even a twinkle in his eye. Class me, all the way. All right, let me step out of the topical and give you the introduction <laughs> that you deserved. Uh, Wendy and Richard Penny make up Warp Graphics, who publish ElfQuest, the longest-running independent fantasy graphic novel series in the U.S., with more than 20 million comics, graphic novels, and other publications in print. Uh, and in 2018, you celebrated 40 years. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It only feels I, like 80 yeah, <laughs> round about 80. I, I want to talk to you about ElfQuest, and I want to talk to you about uh, what you're working on now. And uh, and you fret not. We will talk about how we met. <laughs> yes. It, and about it, my, but, but stop. stop. We, do, we do have some rather personal knowledge of you, yes. <laughs> Indirectly, let's make that clear right now. <laughs> Indirectly, yes. Did we'll, you, I mean, we'll do your parents that. know about this? Oh, my, yeah. My, my dad comes to my comedy shows. Okay. Um, but first, I want to I want to go back a ways, and I want to get mm-hmm. a little bit of history and and some of the parts that are really heavily tread in other interviews. Uh, I even heard from you guys. It's maybe a little exhausting to talk about. We'll skip mm-hmm. over real lightly. But I want to start, Wendy. You were born uh, not too far from me here in San Francisco. Uh, I was born in San Francisco and adopted at the age of six weeks and raised in Gilroy, California. Okay. Uh, but who did we just have on talking about Gilroy? Uh, uh, the author Aaron Carnes of uh, uh, In Defense of Ska also grew hmm. up in Gilroy. Boy, we have a theme now running with the podcast. Gilroy yes, Garlic Garlic some great of the people. world. There are a Garlic few Temple, es- yeah. escapees from Gilroy who did pretty well with, for themselves. Uh, growing up in Gilroy, were you like, – like at what age did you get introduced to comic books? Well, um, I would say around the age of 16, I discovered Marvel Comics. And how how big was Marvel at that time? Like, was it something this, a lot of 16-year-olds were reading? Was it kind of a, a unique pleasure to you? This would have been 1965. Mm-hmm. And since the Marvel age of comics, as they like to call it, started in 1961 mm-hmm. with Fantastic Four, um, 1965, they would have been hitting their stride. They oh, would they would have been a, yeah. a a juggernaut. Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. I uh, the first Marvel comic I read was uh, the introduction of the In- Inhumans and the Fantastic Four. I absolutely fell in love with every aspect of it. Uh, I, I want to hear more about that. I want to hear about the. F- I love that you remember the first comic book that you read. How oh, how did it come yes. into your hands? 
Um, let me see now. Uh, I do believe I simply uh, was intrigued by it uh, in uh, a Safeway grocery store. I <laughs> saw it on a spinner. That's so and, funny. Uh, I, I just told the story of my first comic book. It was the same thing. I saw it in a spinner at a grocery store. I was like, hmm, what is this? Are. There All right. you are. So, so, you know, you're 16 years old. You see mm-hmm. it, you grab it. Mm-hmm. And that was unusual back then. Girls did not read comics back then. I had, I had no peers or friends at school who read comics. So I, I was kind of alone with my obsession. But uh, the storytelling, you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were just an incredible team. And uh, the artwork was fabulous. And it, it just drew me right into a uh, a more powerful way of visualizing. I had been drawing since I was about two years old. I I think I was probably born with a pencil in my hand, (laughs) but, um, no wonder your mom put you up for adoption. Yeah. Yeah. I knew you were going to go there. I I couldn't (laughs) help it, but God, that must have hurt, right? (laughs) Delivering a pencil. (laughs) See, you never miss a bet. Hopefully not sharpened yet. Yes, that's probably why. But um, but but Jack Kirby, as an artist, introduced me to um, structure, to weight, to power, to masculine qualities in drawing that I I really enjoyed uh, incorporating into my drawing style. Um, uh, I don't. I never really have drawn like a girl. If, if you can, <laughs> you know, the hearts and the flowers and the unicorns, that was never for me. Right. Blood and guts and battle and superheroics <laughs> and sword and sorcery. You, I'm there. <laughs> How did your uh, parents respond to your interest in drawing and, and the type of drawings that you did? Well, I did an entire interview about that in uh, – a wonderful magazine called Comics Creator. Let's just say it was tough. Okay. It was tough. So they had their concerns. No, they had their objections. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this was this was not a girlish thing to do, and uh, right. my fa- my my parents were staunch Republicans, very traditional, ah. and. Uh, and all of this fantasy stuff was just something they thought was very weird and objectionable. And they wanted me to, you know, paint still lifes of fruit and things and that they would have been much more happy with that. I think it was a case of malign disinterest. Malign disinterest. <laughs> did, they, did they change their tune later when they realized that it fulfilled one of those Republican needs for something to have value? It made money? No, uh, never had the chance for that because oh, uh, my mother passed away uh, when I was uh, in my mid twenties, and I never had a good relationship with my father. So, um, quite frankly, I I never really honestly knew what he thought of my work. I yeah. uh, I know he didn't ever follow it. I know he didn't follow the stories or anything like that. So, um, never really got the chance to. Uh, have that kind of resolution with my parents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your, like, like how soon after that first comic book did you have your second and third and fourth? <laughs> did you, I mean, did you rush right back to Safeway? Did you find your local comic book store? <laughs> or did this just consume I beca- you? I became a collector, but, but I have to tell you that things really took off when I met Richard because, um, and did you do your homework? Do you know how we met? 
Well, I'm going to let you tell me. Uh, let's let's stop you okay. there and back up a um, little. Richard, you grew up in Connecticut, yeah. right? I grew up in uh, southern Connecticut, a uh, little town called Orange, which I thought doesn't rhyme with anything until Tom Lair taught me about door hinge. And um, <laughs> um, my, I, I, I also remember the first comic book that I found on the stands, but it was not the first comic book that I ever bought. Okay. The first comic book that I ever bought See, my father used to take my brother and me to the flea market on Sundays. And flea markets back then were huge, acre-wide, sprawling affairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found a copy of Fantastic Four number four. Mm. And the guy was selling it for a dime. And I didn't know what I was buying, but there was something about it that intrigued me. This is where they brought the Submariner back well, from how, the Golden Age. How old are you at this point? Oh, I would have been uh, 10? 12. Okay, okay. 12-ish? You know, I thought you were going to say, like, and this was two years ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, on eBay. Um, <laughs> but uh, later in life, when I was 15 or 16, um, I was – press ganged into taking accordion lessons <laughs> because my grandmother had played the accordion. So she forced my mother to take lessons and, you know, misery loves generational company. Yeah. So uh, both my brother and me were going to damn well take accordion lessons too. Uh, and uh, my parents would drive me to the place uh, where the lessons were taught. But across the street, there was a drugstore. And while I was waiting my turn, I'd walk over there and they had a comics rack. And I remember buying Fantastic Four number 37, which was really maybe just an issue or two after the one that Wendy mm -hmm. mentioned mm -hmm. um, or before or something. But uh, I got it home and what blew me away was that uh, it was a gripping story and it ended on a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, right. uh, DC, DC Comics, you bought Superman or Batman, you got three eight-page stories. They're all tiny and little self-contained things. And this was a cliffhanger. And I went out of my mind because I had to wait a month to find <laughs> out what was next. And, and it was a drug. It was absolute heroin. And I became a Marvel zombie long before that term was coined. Nice. So now you've got to tell them how we met. Oh, yeah. This was leading somewhere. Yes, it Yes, was. there were those ads in the back of the comic. Well. You could send uh, away for things, and you saw Wendy's ad. You know, you you're sent not, away for her. <laughs> right. It was comics, mail order bride. You are not <laughs> far off. Um, we were both fans of the same comics, although we didn't know it, because I was at that time living in uh, – near Boston, going to college, and Wendy was still in Gilroy. We were a year apart. She was in her last year of high school, and I was in my first year of college. We were both reading the same titles, and there was then a wonderful title called The Silver Surfer. Yes. And the fifth issue of that title had a letter printed in the back. And in those days, things were much gentler and safer. The companies used to print the mailing address of the person who wrote the letter. <laughs> so, I mean, you, oh, you, it, it would have been a stalker's paradise if oh, there yeah. had been stalkers. But uh, yeah. 
so there was a letter from Wendy in there, and uh, it was a thoughtful letter, and it was a philosophical letter, and it was also written by a girl. And uh, I was <laughs> we were like, M- I've heard of these things. Uh, yes, the <laughs> mythical unicorn-like creatures. Because I was at MIT, and there's 8,000 males and 200 females. The ratio was yeah. terrible. Um, <laughs> but here's a girl who not only was intelligent and thoughtful, but who also obviously was reading comics the same as, as I was doing. So I took a stab, and I mm-hmm. wrote a letter to her. And to my surprise, got a letter back, and we began a correspondence that essentially lasted four years, and then we decided it was probably a lot more efficient to just get married and and be together. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming somewhere in that four years you met in person. Well, yes, he lied to his parents and uh, told them that he was going to a writing seminar in Pennsylvania, I believe. And instead, he hopped into his little Renault and drove across country in two and a half days, living on Vivran and Lifesavers, to get to Pitzer College, where I was uh, in my, um, uh, they had a, a sort of an adjustment period before classes actually started. So he arrived during that period. Okay, and that, that was in Claremont, California. This is amazing, and and as a <laughs> as a pre-internet, pre-cell phone road tripper myself, uh, mm-hmm. for all you kids listening out there, um, you guys aren't sending each other selfies. He doesn't have Google no. Maps to get to you. There's no texting to tell you no. I'm almost there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that like when all of a sudden this dude who you've been exchanging <laughs> letters with shows up? Well, the dude had the presence of mind because I was fried. I literally was driving nonstop. Oh, yeah. And I, and I was fried by the time I got there, but I had enough presence of mind to check into a motel so I could take a shower Good yes. boy. <laughs> before we met, because otherwise we might not be having this conversation. Now, my college, Pitzer College, was only four years old at the time, and it was a very hippy-dippy Okay. experimental college. And so they were doing idiotic things like having encounter groups with nobody running them, just putting a bunch of students into a room to eviscerate each other uh, <laughs> wow. without any leadership. So I was in, in one of those encounter groups and I knew Richard was supposed to arrive at some point that day. Most of the people in my encounter group thought I had made him up and I kept jumping up <laughs> to look out the door to see if he was in the hallway and they got very mad at me. And, you know, it was a very, it was an ugly scene in the encounter group, but finally I peeked, I peered out the door and down at the end of the hallway. And mind you, I had only ever seen a few photographs of him. Because you have to actually physically take a photograph and mail it to each other. Through the postal service. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, yeah. So there, there, down at the end of the hallway, he was, and I recognized him, and uh, you know, it was kind of a slow motion thing we did towards each other, and, <laughs> and, and that's how that's the that, first time that we met. That's the first time we met in person. Uh, that's my favorite relationship meeting story ever that is incredible <laughs> um and and it's you've not comics. illustrated this yet well, 
Mm. We've we've told the story hundreds, literally hundreds of times. And I made you tell it again. And and I'm not sorry. It was fun telling you. It was fun telling you. (laughs) Um, But uh, Stan Lee uh, heard about our story and and how we met. And so when he's kind of the matchmaker. (laughs) Well, he acted like that. He acted like a bit of a yenta, you know, sort of bragging (laughs) about it. Oh, that's funny. Uh, so, okay, we're covering the first. This is another really important first here uh, for Richard. Richard, when did you first see Wendy in the Red Sonia getup? Because I know you remember. Because I remember. Helped, he helped to build the darn thing. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, because um, we were at a uh, a comics convention in Boston in 1976, and the Red Sonia title at Marvel was just, again, beginning to really take off. And the artist on the book, Frank Thorne, who's wonderful, curmudgeonly, <laughs> wizardly fellow, um, was at this convention, and he said you should attend uh, the Red Sonia Convention. They were holding a, a dedicated convention for Red Sonia okay. in New Jersey later that year, and said to Wendy, "You should you should uh, dress up, and and uh, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have a, a Sonia lookalike contest." Mm-hmm. So Wendy doesn't simply dress up in costumes. No. She is a a master class costumer. The word cosplay didn't exist yet. And it, so the, the word didn't exist, but how common was it? Like at, at these conventions, were there people in it costume? Was, it was starting to become common. Uh, masquerading or costuming, as we used to call it, okay. really kind of originated in, in science fiction and fantasy conventions. Okay. Uh, and that was my earliest experience of conventions. I didn't I didn't attend my first comic con, I don't think, until after I had met Richard. Um but I had I had become a costumer at fantasy and science fiction conventions, and that just kind of naturally uh, uh, carried over into our attendance of uh, comic cons and masquerading the the masquerade balls. Uh, by the time we were doing the Red Sonia and the Wizard Show, had evolved into very very elaborate affairs, especially at San Diego Con. So what were your early costumes prior to Red Sonia? Oh, my goodness. Now you're asking me to go way back. <laughs> Give me a couple. I mean, what sort of oh, thing? Oh, let me see. Uh, we, did, uh, we did Scar and Star from Heinlein's Glory Road. Okay. Elric. And, the, uh, we did Elric and Zarozinia from Michael Moorcock's uh, Stormbringer series. And we won a prize for that. Nice. Uh, let's see. Um I was various uh, fairies and witches and sorceresses, you know, with no particular. They were they were made up characters. I've been Maleficent. Uh, <laughs> gosh, uh, there I were know just you, so many. You have loved Maleficent forever. Oh, she is my queen. <laughs> yes, she is. You know, I bow to her. So, so you get ready to go to this Red Sonia Con, and well, you mm-hmm. you got to go all out. She's she's going to go all out. Um, uh, other costumers might have gone to a uh, 
uh, belly dance uh, accessory store and gotten those little lightweight plastic bangle coin looking things um, that make great belly dancing costumes. But um, Wendy wanted her uh, Red Sonia costume, the the cast iron bikini, as it came to be called, <laughs> to clank. It had to, I mean, if it was going to be armor, even if skimpy, if it was going to be armor, it had to be made out of metal. So she designed it, drew up the plans for it and said, I need, you know, 500 steel discs to sew onto the garment that was the foundation. And so I went to a place that manufactured uh, uh, nails and screws and washers and bolts. And I bought a whole mess of the punched out centers, the, the donut holes from washers mm-hmm. and drilled holes in them. And she sewed them onto a leather bikini undergarment. Mm-hmm. And the whole costume ended up weighing 20, 25 pounds. Including what? the sword. It came to about 25 pounds. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and how did you keep it up? Well, it was very, very, very well designed because I did not, you know, if that, if a strap had ever broken, that thing weighed so much, it would have hit the floor in a split (laughs) second. And I would have been mighty, mighty cold. (laughs) (laughs) This is something that Wendy does, and and she has done it all through ElfQuest. Um, When she designs a costume to draw, Mm-hmm. She designs it such that you can construct it and it will work on mm-hmm. a living body. I mm-hmm. love that. Uh, and, and, you know, fans have done ElfQuest cosplays for years and they said, how did you how did you know to make it so correct and, mm-hmm. and, and so buildable? And it's just what she does. So she did the same for the Sonya costume mm-hmm. and she used actually the weight of it to help hold it on. Yes. Yeah, the the shoulders were sort of, I don't know if the word is cantilevered, but uh, everything was made (laughs) out of metal and it was uh, thickened up with solder and liquid metal. And so it it was quite the gleaming, shining thing to behold. But the best part about it was it clanked. I got to have that clank. So at the Red Sonia convention, the, you know, the, the other girls who had entered the cost contest came out and they were wearing the the light plastic belly dancing bangles and they did their shtick and then I just I I never put the Red Sonia costume on without being totally in character for the entire time so I I came swaggering out and just clanked my way up to the judges and I had a piece to speak that was a little bit off color (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I brandished the sword at the audience and the judges and uh, just kind of ran away with the contest. So, (laughs) oh, delightful. The the first time. See, it wasn't a case of the first time I saw her in it because Mm. we were building it together. So it was an evolution. But when she got on that stage, (laughs) she was possessed. (laughs) The spirit of Sonia was was hovering over her. And this is pre-ElfQuest. Uh, it's in a way. Now, I had been telling the story of ElfQuest in one form or another since I was in my teens. Um, 
the the major theme, the storytelling theme of my life is outsiders trying to find a way to fit into a hostile world. So I had done other stories in the past that were about uh, groups of youngsters. You know, one was a science fictional story called The Rebels about a, a group of space kids trying to find a planet that they would like to live on. Um, I did a story called The Rock Garden about little insect creatures. They were like fairies, but they were a tribe and they were trying to uh, survive in the rock garden. So so my stories are almost always about survival, being up against it, overcoming. They're never about good versus evil. It's about uh, knowledge versus ignorance and the triumph of, of knowledge over ignorance. And uh, so ElfQuest was, had just kind of been brewing and percolating for many, many years. And in 1977, when I sat Richard down to tell him the story, my goodness, um, Star Wars had just come out. Uh, Ralph Bakshi had just come out with uh, uh, Wizards and he was coming out with Lord of the Rings. Wow. And... Uh, uh, close Encounters of the Third Kind. All of these things were happening all at once in 1977. And w- they were like a sign or a signal to us that the world was ready for a comic book that was like a high fantasy story because comic books at that time were about superheroes. That's what, that's what people thought comics were at the time. Right. And Marv- Marvel was just dominating the whole scene. But we we decided that we wanted to bring out this story. I, I told it to Richard. He fell in love. And he immediately set about figuring out, how can we do this? How can we get this story out there? Was it always clear that you would draw and write? Um, absolutely. Um, when, as, as Wendy just said, she sat me down one spring day in, in 1977 um, and told me the bare bones outline mm. of ElfQuest. And I thought it was great. Mm. Um, we had just seen Star Wars. And, and, and as she said, it, it was like the success of these high concept science fiction and fantasy movies. Mm. Uh, told the world that it's okay to do science fiction and fantasy because you can be successful at it. Okay, you might have to be Steven Spielberg or George mm-hmm. Lucas to be <laughs> successful, but uh, we but took it were, as a they, sign. They were no longer a niche or cult uh, kind of entertainment. With the, the outburst of Star Wars, suddenly everyone in the world wanted to see that and wanted more of that kind of entertainment. And that was what was so encouraging at the time. So I want to, I want to stop you guys at that moment because to me, Mm. that's just such a a huge moment in the history. Mm. Richard, she's presenting this to you. Were there drawings already? Did she sit down and show you like, like what, or was it just listen? Here's the story. Here's the, the initial sit down was, you know, let me tell you a story. And I thought it was great. But she had drawings of these characters. They they were, you know, 
not quite as formed as they have evolved mm -hmm. into. But I had been watching her do drawings of fantasy uh, topics for for years now. And um, her ability to do subtle expression and body language and, and to convey uh, emotion without writing a single word, I you know, I was enchanted by it, and obviously a lot of other people were because she had made a name for herself at, uh, at science fiction conventions and art shows and doing the illustrations for fanzines and all of that. Um, and by that time, I had already worked professionally as a, a science fiction and fantasy illustrator for um, magazines like Galaxy and If and, uh, you know, various other things. So, so, Wendy, how how did you feel sitting him down to tell him this story? Were you nervous? I was obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> Were you worried about how he would respond to it, to, to no. take that thing inside of you and then share it with your partner? Oh, no, because Richard knew me very, very well by then. He, you know, he, uh, we were always sharing stories and, okay. and, and he, he knew that I could not keep that sort of thing in. Which is, which is not to say that we didn't have, we didn't butt heads from time to oh. time on, on this mm. project or that project, but because we were both big fans of comics and because we realized that the only sensible way to present ElfQuest was in the comic book format, this was something that we could really, really work on together. Mm. If she did a painting for a science fiction art show auction. That was her painting. It was her idea. And it was, it was, uh, you know, a hundred percent hers, but because we were both into comics and we both enjoyed comics and, um, I could contribute yeah. in my way it was to a making this thing. It was it was very much a team effort, and I, I really went for that. Absolutely. It was always important to Richard to feel that he, he was part of what was going on. Um, it's, it's almost as if it was written in the stars that our partnership would be one of idea person, creator, and facilitator. Richard... Richard just makes things happen. I, I come up with an idea, I present it to him, and he just figures out how to get it out there. Where and to get little metal discs, for example. It, precisely. <laughs> and even before that, he facilitated me because I would exhibit at art shows and, and conventions, and he would, he would do my matting and framing for me. Okay. He would help me run my... Uh, uh, you know, uh, the art auctions and, and do my business, the business end of it. Richard always kind of managed me and handled the business end of things. And it, it worked out so, so, you know, seamlessly, even though, as he says, of course we butted heads. Every, every relationship does have uh, the, the, the push and pull. What is something uh, you butt heads or butted heads over specifically in regards to creation of the comic book? Oh, oh. well, here's one that, that springs to mind. I think I know what you're going to say. Um, <laughs> when Wendy presented the initial concept of ElfQuest to me, 
it had a beginning and a middle and an end, which is not to say that it was so locked down and graven in stone that there wasn't room for improvisation, um, because there was. And uh, one of the characters at one point was going to die in battle. And I didn't like that. Well, to, oh my was, God, I, I can I can just imagine if I had access to writers <laughs> killing off my favorite characters. I wow, I mean, I would butt heads. I'm just thinking now of you know in in Lord of the Rings or even uh, so many. Absolutely, and this was an elf that Richard was particularly attached to. This was Skywise. Would you? That's not you were gonna going to kill Skywise. Oh, oh, all right. Okay, all right. All right. This is a two-parter. It just turned into a two-parter. <laughs> How dare you? I'm of, mad now. I'm, I'm sitting here. Oh, angry. dear. Well, all right. I, I'll all right. explain it. I'll explain no, later. No, 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 no. I'll uh, explain later. Uh, yes, Wendy <laughs> is absolutely correct because she's she's always had a huge flair for the dramatic, for hurt comfort, for uh, 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 climactic... Uh, um, scenes. Let's let's face it. I love to do death scenes. <laughs> okay, there you have it. Um, so early on, uh, Skywise was, was going to save Cutter's life, but lose his own in the process. Mm-hmm. Wow! Now she made the mistake <laughs> of telling me about Skywise, and Skywise is the tribe's astronomer is a little bit too formal, but he's the stargazer. He's the one who looks up and out and wonders at how things work Mm. and, and, and wonders at the cycles of the heavens. He's, he's just that kind of curious. Such a beautiful character. And when I learned that this character was going to bite the dust. Bite the stardust. The stardust. <laughs> I, 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 I planted my foot and said, no, you're not going to do that. This is my elf. He's, and I'm not going to tell you where he planted his foot. <laughs> Richard, uh, thank you. On, on behalf of all. Of you're not, of I, you know, I said you. you're not killing off my elf. Mm-hmm. I, I took really, really uh, immediate possession. Mm-hmm. But where I was going mm. was later in the story. Oh. There's a big battle mm-hmm. between the elves and the trolls. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a, a, a bloody, bloody war. And it is... The night before that war that caused you to know oh, about Oh, we're going to talk about issue 17 already. I thought we were going to say No, that. we're, we're going to save it for when you want to uh, <laughs> okay. get it. I mean, bring it up. <laughs> but um, Oh, please. He, he That's does TMI. That. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Richard loves the single entendre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the the character was one eye and mm-hmm. he was going to die because nobody 
not everybody survives battle. I mean, it's just right. the way of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was upset by that. And mm-hmm. I said, do we have to kill him? Do we have to kill him? And mm-hmm. she said, quite reasonably, how do you not have somebody die when there's battle? And we went back and forth and back and forth and compromised on having one eye be very near to death, but his body gets wrapped up in this stuff called wrap stuff that preservers make, and right. it suspends time inside of it. So, mm-hmm. so one eye's body goes into suspended animation. And we're going deep into the lore now. Right. And and his his body went, you know, off stage and stayed off stage for a long time. And the great thing about that conflict between Wendy and myself at that time was that it allowed for the evolution of a much more profound bit of storytelling Mm -hmm. later on because we had the suspended character of one eye Mm -hmm. to work with. Sometimes you know that an, an event in the story is the right thing to do but there are opportunities to place it in different parts of the story when it when it can have a deeper meaning and w- we just happen to luck onto that with this one character but that's an example of how richard and i work things out uh yeah we do have story disagreements but it's a characteristic of us to always find a third alternative that tends to be better than either idea we were fighting for originally. Right. That's great. That's uh, I'm I'm still I think a little bit in shock uh, about Oh, about uh, Skywise. You, trying to kill Skywise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, evil, there's evil woman. <laughs> we 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 have the the artwork for that scene. Oh my and god! It, if yeah. you shared that with us, if, if you scanned uh, that over, I. <laughs> it's, I think it's been published somewhere, but I I don't know about. I don't remember that it's been yeah. published anywhere, but I remember right. it very clearly. It is just so. I mean, the the music swells up, <laughs> and and the the you know the howl of no to the heavens. Oh, stop and, it. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's one thing I never will do. He's he's exaggerating. Though I'm, I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times, Keith, in movies and comics where a beloved character dies and the other character is holding the body and screaming up at the heavens. No, right. it's the worst cliche ever, ever. I, I will never do a scene like that ever. When, when Darth Vader did it in the prequel, uh. I, I, I was like – Okay, I mean, they were already bad. And I'm, <laughs> as, a, as a childhood fan who's trying so hard to find something redeeming, I mm. lasted all the way until that scene. And mm. at that scene, I, I turned to my wife and I went, this is stupid. These mm. are stupid. <laughs> I give mm. up. These are They're dumb. Mm. Everyone was telling me that through the first two. But when Darth mm. Vader dropped down and no, nah! okay, <laughs> these are stupid. <laughs> so let's, uh, let, let's go back a little bit. Um, uh-huh. It seems to me, reading the history, that ElfQuest had a, an odd, almost kind of a false start. I mean, issue one didn't – so you guys didn't release issue one independently. It was introduced uh, – it was published as part of a, a sort of a compilation volume uh, that wasn't handled well. Is that correct? 
Yes. Um, Wendy has, has said that I like to facilitate things, but early in ElfQuest's history, all I wanted was that that we would create the story and the art and send the artwork off to a publisher and they would publish it, do the heavy lifting and send right. us money. <laughs> and that, that was the extent of the transaction that I wanted. But as Wendy pointed out, we took it to Marvel, we took it to DC, we took it to a couple other um, independent publishers and they all said no. I finally found a small independent publisher in the Midwest who said, yeah, we'll do that. And uh, to their sole credit, they did get the first issue out. Um, it was a disappointing production because uh, the, the the cover was cheap newsprint and it wasn't glossy and, and the, the color separations were terrible. But much worse than that, the guy, A, didn't return Wendy's artwork and B, didn't pay us. Mm. So well, that's not good. That's not good at all. So one weekend I got on an airplane in Boston, got off the airplane in Detroit and rented a car and drove up to the guy's house and uh, ambushed him. Oh, wow. Uh, he was not expecting me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm uh, a stand-up comedian. I've done this. <laughs> this is a thing you have to do. Artists need yes. to get paid. Uh, well, well, now we want to hear that story. But Oh, know, there's many, but sure. <laughs> um, even more important than getting paid was getting Wendy's artwork back because mm. he not only had the artwork for the first issue, but the second issue as well. Mm. And we just wanted nothing more to do with him. And it was at that point that we looked at each other and said, look, the only way we're going to get this done is if we do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's when I put on the mantle of, okay, I have to learn how to be a publisher now. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what a huge undertaking. Let me ask you what, I mean, this is a big question. We could spend an hour just on this, but tell me a a little bit about what the comic landscape was like in 1978. And and I'll preface that by telling you my impression is, as you guys said, there was the superhero comics on one end. And then we did have independent comics, but they were mostly weirder kind of art comics. I think Spiegelman was already quite active, wasn't he? Yes. You've got Crumb. You've got the drug culture stuff. Yes. Those were the underground comics. Uh, They were our predecessors, and they they were absolutely absolutely dominated the 60s into the early 70s. But we were in on the ground floor – of the birth of the independent comics movement. Okay. Uh, at, at the time, there were maybe three or four titles out. There was First Kingdom. There was Star Reach. Uh, I think Dave Sim had put out a couple of issues of Cerebus. And oh, wow. There was one other. That, that was basically that it. Was, I guess we were the other. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 – uh, uh, Star Reach and First Kingdom preceded us by a couple of years, so they mm. provided a model. Yes. Okay. Uh, a format that I could take to printers and say, can you do me this? Mm-hmm. Right. And they'd either say yes or no, and mm-hmm. that's that's how I learned that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Did you reach out to any of them? D- uh, reach, reach out in what way? Uh, for mentorship, advice. Oh, oh. We knew all these people. That's we, why I figured we, you were part of the convention we, scene and 
Sure, and we an artist. You know, they knew us and we knew them as as friends, as peers. I I wouldn't ever say mentors, no. Uh, we, we were just, you know, the way we grew up, we each of us, Wendy's told you a little bit about her growing up. Mine was similar in, in ways. We both grew up having to learn self-sufficiency yes. to a, a greater degree than I think was normal. So when we got turned down by the companies we approached. Mm-hmm. We just said, all right, we got to do it ourselves mm-hmm. and, and we're going to figure it out. Um, I know that I didn't call up Bud Plant or Mike Friedrich or any of those guys and say, how do you do this? Right. I just went to the yellow pages, which existed <laughs> and uh, looked up printers mm-hmm. and we knew a couple of distributors and uh, I learned bookkeeping and I learned marketing and I, I just but it learned is, by example. It is a good rule of thumb if you have something you want to get started to look for things that resemble what it is you dream of doing. That's great and, advice, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and that works for us to this day in anything we get involved with is we just uh, try to observe closely what's been done before that's been done well and successfully that um, in some way embodies uh, something we'd like to do. Um, what about so, the opposite of that? Hmm? You, what about the opposite of that? One thing I, I really liked hearing one of my favorite bands, the Talking Heads, talk about is that they made a list of everything they didn't want to do and every <laughs> everything that they didn't want to really? sound like. And what was left was the Talking Heads. And it, it well, made me feel a little better about my approach <laughs> to, to stand up because I see a whole lot of, uh, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to do that. Was there well, was there any of that involved well, no, in your no, guys' it, decision it, making? That you, that's called decision-making by contrast. Right. The contrast is the thing you don't want. Yeah, but you, you I, I'm pointing at Wendy now, um, <laughs> you do this sort of thing all the time. We've mm-hmm. talked about it. And in fantasy, there are many, many tropes. Uh, there oh, are we did many, just ma- talk about the no. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. that's one of them. And um, for example, uh, a, a huge one that's been parodied many a time. Uh, Frank Frazetta did it masterfully on the covers of uh, however many Conan paperbacks. But you have Conan, you know, this this overmuscled He-Man on the cover, and you have a scantily clad girl clinging to his leg. Right. Mm-hmm. And. So Wendy very much likes to take tropes and then turn them on their ear uh, to make the point by contrast of mm-hmm. uh, of a different way of doing things. For example, when the Wolf Riders uh, uh, encounter the Sun Village and invade and Cutter sweeps up Lita uh, you think, okay, there's the male and he's mm-hmm. exerting dominance over the female. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they scurry back up into the, uh, the hills and Lita immediately puts Cutter in his place. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, them quite a dressing down. Oh, yes, yeah. indeed. And, and you see, you, uh, I had to show the bad behavior 
you know, to, I had to demonstrate the old cliche of the guy throwing the girl over the shoulder so that I could then take that cliche and flip it on its ear and and show an, an entirely different way that it could turn out with the girl uh, asserting herself, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me use that as a, as a loose segue into something that I've been dying to ask you about. All right. As you're submitting and as you're getting rejections, mm-hmm. how much do you feel the fact that it was someone named Wendy who was the writer and the artist? Uh, that was the problem. I mean, you've talked about it being really a, a boys club and, and looking back yes. at it, I mean, that's one of the areas where you're most, uh, a, you know, a, a forerunner. Now, here's where my story differs from a lot of women who had to really fight and punch against that glass ceiling. I, they are my heroes. I respect them. I have a very different story. Because I came up through science fiction and fantasy from a really early age, from, from my teens, and, and my artwork was known well ahead of my involvement in comics, I, ha- I already had established a reputation. Okay. And even the people we approached who told us no knew who I was. And uh, the the wonderful thing about the Red Sonia experience was that that's how I got my first professional work in comics, because huh. Frank Thorne and Roy Thomas, who uh, were the artist and writer, uh, respectively, of, of the Red Sonia books, invited me at one point to write an issue of Red Sonia. So I wrote Red Sonia number six, uh, edited by Roy Thomas. Wow. That was how I broke in. Nobody gets a break like that, male or female. It's a lightning in a bottle, one in a million thing that happened to me. And uh, that's why I'm no good at getting people advice how to break in. Because my experience was so weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just one lucky thing after another. Uh, you know, we, Richard and I have some good stars watching over us because, uh, you know, right after the Red Sonia and uh, after we finished doing the stage show, uh, I had already started developing ElfQuest and I think we'd gotten – one or two issues out, and the darn thing just took off like wildfire. The timing was right. People were ready for it. The sales of ElfQuest, we started with a very large original print run. Richard, why don't you take it from here? Oh, well, we the first issue of ElfQuest sold 10,000 copies. and the, no, no, this the, was, But the first issue was issue, was issue two. Well, our first issue mm-hmm. was issue two. The actual first issue, and, and, and as I said earlier, the one this that you the, weren't happy with the production quality of. Yes, yes, and and this is a testament to the strength of the story and the artwork that even in that crappy package, mm-hmm. um, ten thousand copies sold right off the press. Now, this was at a time when people were doing independent comic fanzine sorts of things. And if you did 500, that was a big number. We did Mm 10,000. Then 
issue number two was our first issue. That was 20,000. And then the next one was 40. And we never How did you guys back. keep up? The printing and the shipping and <laughs> well, it was it was insane and and now you're getting into the period of our lives where um, things got very very difficult juggling our relationship as husband and wife juggling our relationship as publisher and artist writer um, juggling what was happening to us it all happened so fast Keith that we weren't prepared for it. We had never been involved with anything like that in our lives. And right. the amount of the amount of attention that we got, the suddenly, you know, the invitations to conventions and and you know, the I guess you could call it the minor celebrity and all of that. We were not prepared for any of that. And uh talk about learning by the seat of your pants how to deal with <laughs> things. Um it, it it was hard on us, very hard. But you got on top of it. Well, it more took, or less. It took time. Yeah. It took time, just like learning how to be a publisher, learning how to right. make a comic book. We had to learn how to coexist. Wendy mentioned the the husband, the wife, the artist, the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to learn new ways to communicate with each other because sometimes the the artist and the publisher would be really, really at odds with each other. And we just have to take a breath and take a step back and say, um, we need the the husband and the wife to show up now mm-hmm. uh, right. and talk to each other because these other two are behaving like real bastards. <laughs> oh yeah. And- <laughs> we, li- we literally role played, you know, right. uh, in the middle of an argument, you know, I'd say, can I speak to my husband now? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you put the because most- you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You put, you put the most charming drawing in the back of one of the issues. Mm. Uh, and I'm, oh. I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but it was, I think it was Lita and Cutter and, and one of them's biting the other one's ear seductively. Oh, and there was yes. a, there was a note about, you know, Hey, <laughs> you need to take a break from work every now and then. Oh yes. The caption was all work and no play. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this was, this was Wendy saying to Richard, time mm-hmm. to switch hats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With like, you know, chill boy, chill, you know. You are absolutely right. You because know we're both, we're both very obsessive about what we do. We, we are, I don't know that I would apply perfectionist, but, but we really do dot the I's and cross the T's and, and uh, are not satisfied until we have done those things. And, and it can get very intense sometimes. That drawing made such an impression on me as a kid, really, where I think I became a fan not only of the comic at that point, but I became a fan of you guys as a couple. Oh, I was like, aww. I want these two to make it. Like, <laughs> I want them to last because, because that was just so charming. And I, you know, oh. at that age, you're thinking of what you want in a relationship. And I was mm-hmm. like, I want something like that. That's just, it was just cute and sweet and you know, and and sexy too, to be honest. Well, <laughs> see now now you're touching on the on the thing that made Elfquest so subversive. Because, because you you have these these essentially childlike character structures mm-hmm. um designs you know, the, the, the 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 small bodies the large right. 
large eyes, the large heads. That's that's called sort of neoteny. Yeah, Ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes parents go, ah, uh, and they've got curves and muscles and, and, <laughs> and abs for years. <laughs> right. And, and they do things. And uh, it's that it's a wonderful kind of tension. Mm-hmm. And and readers just ate it up with a spoon. Well, yeah, uh, it, it, the time was right for it. It's something that people wanted. People wanted to fantasy to go in a different direction. Lord of the Rings was the the 9,000-pound gorilla. Right. And Lord of the Rings had absolutely no sex and extremely few fe- female characters. And it was very much, you know, a, a kind of a guy story. Uh, the the love between Sam and Frodo was was the most attractive part of the story. And then Mary many, and Mary and Pippin take a second to that. And and Mary and yeah. Pippin Those take a second to that. Beautiful relationships. Yes, absolutely. There were there were definitely some things in Lord of the Rings that uh, were able to touch the hearts of all. But I think at the time we tapped into what readers were looking for, particularly female readers. They didn't want to read comics that were about superheroes bashing the crap out of each other, and they didn't want to know who was stronger, the Hulk or Thor. They were interested in relationships. They were interested in personalities, uh, in in how characters solved problems, and you know, more social kind of content and sexual. Very right. interested in romance and sex and all those glorious things, and and I was more than ready to uh, supply that. <laughs> <laughs> if if Marvel or DC had said yes to you. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they would have allowed you to go in those directions? No. So that um, I mean, thank God they said no. Thank God. Uh, thank heavens above. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, we've 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 wondered about that from time to time, but we actually have no basis to know what might have happened to Elfquest if if they would have exerted editorial control if now, the, the one do, beautifully ironic thing we do know the comics code existed at the time and would not sure. have uh, well yeah. there's that yeah. there's that um the, the the beautifully ironic thing about all of this is that when the first series of Elfquest was done the first 20 issues that spanned from 1978 to 1984, uh, as ElfQuest was drawing to a close, Marvel got in touch and said, um, would you consider letting us reprint the series? We're starting up a uh, uh, an imprint called Epic that's mm-hmm. creator-owned independent comics, and we'd love to do ElfQuest. And, and I subscribed. It, Oh God! It was just such a great feeling to mm. you know have them right. come knocking at the door eight years after they'd said no. So yeah. you subs- you subscribed to Epic at the time? Uh, I subscribed to Elfquest. Okay. Through well, now I'm worried that I might be getting mixed up. Did you guys also who who else reprinted you over the years? Oh mm. well, Marvel was the first in 1985. DC did it 
in in the early 2000s. But if you're talking about, oh, let's just pick a number at random, issue number 17. No, no, no. Because I would have gotten that from us. No, I did. I got I got all of the original ElfQuest from you guys. And then at some point I saw I thought that it was Epic was was the Marvel imprint. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I subscribed to that. And then all of a sudden I got a notice that just because I wanted I had your black and white versions and then I wanted the reprints, which were in color and in more of a traditional comic book format. And then one day I got a note that said there weren't going to be any more. Here's grew the wanderer instead, or yes, <laughs> or I think they gave me a choice. They said, what do you want instead? And I said, grew the wanderer. Cause did you, Sergio, did you actually great. subscribe to our original black and white issues? No, I bought those at Denio's farmer auction and market. A flea market in <laughs> Roseville, California. I love it. Oh, what was my goodness. So is that I was very disciplined with myself. Mm. When I was introduced to him, I was introduced through um, Big Book, through the, the compilations. Oh, okay. Yes, the color, the color collections. Oh, sure, the big hardcover volumes, and, yes. And I read most of them, but I didn't get to the ending. And then I, I moved out of Southern California up to Northern California. I discovered that the, the local comic book stall at the flea market had ElfQuest. Uh, I was very disciplined. I would buy one issue a week, even even when I had more money, I could buy more because I knew that if I bought more, I'd read them all, and I and I wanted to savor it. <laughs> that was my now weekly that's, joy. That says something about you, Keith. <laughs> yes, I think it does. Uh, you know, I, I did the same thing with the Clash. I was like, I love this band. I'm not going to listen to Sandinista yet. I'm going to save oh. it because I want to use the Clash all up. I know they don't have any more material. You you sort of enjoy teasing yourself, huh? I like to make things last. Uh-huh. Um, so so j- jumping back to some of the, the ideas that you guys explored um, that were unusual to ElfQuest and that were allowed by you being independent, mm-hmm. I have a, a question for you from uh, my friend Chris Courtright. I, I put it out there who's coming up, and he had a question he wanted me to ask you. Um, I'll, I'll just read it as he wrote it. I'm interested in their influences and ideas about kinship, family, and gender as mm-hmm. they explore different ideas of mutual beingness and family moving against the modern family model that was naturalized and moralized in this society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great question because you guys really – you you play with gender you play with the family structure yes and you play with the the ideas of monogamy um yes well you see with elves everything goes right they have they have no religion they have no sexual taboos they have no prejudices uh they they have no bigotry they uh their their only rule of life is quite simply, let's treat each other as well as we can. They're not trying to uh, save the world. They are not conscious of being heroic and and do-gooders. They simply, like a pack of wolves, want to live in harmony with nature and and just carry on and survive and and not not destroy. And so the the combination of animal qualities and higher human qualities in the elves make them very flexible, very, very open to all the kinds of ways of being that it's possible. 
to be and all the kinds of ways to love that it's possible to love. They are shapeshifters even. They don't, some of them don't even necessarily hold the same shape all their lives because they are these alien, almost magical beings. Also, in the case of the wolf riders, and I think this extends to all of the different tribes, but particularly in the case of the wolf riders, you have a small group and it's astounding how much energy can be wasted by worrying about superfluous stuff like artificial morality or imposed restriction or any of that kind of thing. They just go with their inner natures. And it's not to say there's not conflict, Right. But but they don't they just don't waste energy. They don't waste their spirit wondering if well, should I do it this way or should I do it that way because this way is is somehow more correct than that way. Mm-hmm. They know instinctively what is right for them. It's, they, they tend to operate out of their better natures. But this and, tells us a little something about you and your sense oh. of morality that you consider that their better nature. And that you, I mean, many people looking at that in your books saw immorality and saw that as a negative yes. thing. I'm wondering, growing yes. up with two Republicans, <laughs> what, what influenced you? to be able to see that way of thinking and being. I I decided around the age of eight that my parents were wrong about everything. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a few years more than that. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad may listen to this. No, my parents weren't wrong about everything. But to start (laughs) asserting that kind of independence, uh, really at eight, at eight, you started going, okay, I don't agree with these people. Absolutely, because first of all, I could not ever have been as bad a girl as they got mad at me for. Okay. I I just decided that I just couldn't be as deserving of this much criticism. There there had to be another way to look at this. They were also very, if you wanted something, chances are very good they would say no. Oh, yeah. If you wanted to, to have a friend and the friend wasn't the right Skin color, or date a guy, or, who or wasn't anything like the that. right race. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. They would, uh, they would let you know. Yeah, but were you, were you? I mean, this is such a, a big question. I mean, where does do, do you feel there was something you read or some culture that you were introduced to at any point that uh, that allowed you to see another way and to think that maybe the they Oban could be wrong? Festival. Well. Uh, Rich, Richard just met, mentioned the Oban Festival um, near to the ranch that I grew up on, which was surrounded by open fields on all sides. Across the field from my ranch was a Buddhist church. And every year they would have the Oban Festival and put up the lanterns and uh wear their beautiful happy coats and kimonos and and do the Oban dancing. And to me, that was fairyland. 
I, I could not wait to get myself over there. So here I am, this little, you know, country oh, wow. white kid. And I would run across the field and just stand there because I wanted to be with those beautiful dancers in their beautiful costumes. And they were so kind to me. <laughs> they, did, they didn't turn me away. Uh, uh, a nice lady gave me a hoppy coat and they showed me some of the steps of the dance. And I got to, I got to join the dance. I, and, this is uh, amazing. This sounds like a Studio Ghibli uh, scene. <laughs> it it is kind of it was it was one of the more magical moments of my childhood, and and naturally, uh, you know, the parents didn't didn't approve of this because they were Japanese, but <laughs> but for me, I was drawn to the beauty of the culture, the 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 uh, colors, the sound of the music, every it all of it filled my soul up. And, and I wasn't getting that at home. So I, I was always drawn to things that, that filled me and, and made me feel much more alive than, uh, than the day-to-day life that I was living at home. And so I think that's why I had a tendency towards fantasy and towards, towards thinking about how people could treat each other um, well, in a way that I would like to be treated. Yeah. You know? It's, it's uh, that simple sometimes, isn't it? So yeah. I, liked, I like to make up imaginary friends and characters and so forth that, that acted like I thought was a wonderful way to act. That's, that's beautiful. Thank and you. And <laughs> I think that that's as good of a segue as anything. Damn it, let's just talk about <laughs> issue 17. <laughs> so I'm going, so I'm going once a week. I'm going once a week. I'm buying my issue. And uh, I mean, the elves were sexy. And some of these female Mm -hmm. elves had great hips and would wore those pants real low on the hips and Mm -hmm. um, definitely appealed to uh, my prurient interests. Um, (laughs) You know, but then all of a sudden I get to this. To me at the time, it felt so out of the blue. And I think looking back at the story now, it maybe shouldn't have been as surprising. But part of why it's surprising is that you broke the rules. Mm-hmm. And the rule was that you weren't going to put something like that in, in this comic book story that I was reading. Um, so all of a sudden in issue 17, uh, there's a very unusual event that the uh, – it's the go-backs, right? Yeah. Yes, they, they are a, a new night of war. They are a new tribe of elves that, that – uh, the Wolf Riders encounter and they form an alliance with them against these really, really horrible trolls who are keeping the elves from reaching their ancestral home. So there's a lot at stake here. And they kick the battle off with one hell of an orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we never used that word. Uh, No, but I did. I named one of my comedy albums Elf Orgy. That's right. Uh, Right. I advise everyone to go Google it right now to see the beautiful cover that Wendy did. Which was uh, tremendous fun. My friend Cole Phillips, who introduced me to ElfQuest, uh, hi Cole, is so incredibly jealous that I had Wendy Penny draw me as an elf. <laughs> um, if I ever have the kind of money I would need to, to ask you to do a commission, I'm going to have you draw Cole as an elf. Cause <laughs> oh. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair that I got that before him. You Um, you did have an advantage. I did. So that that issue comes out, and I I 
but we'll get to my enjoyment of it in a minute. But what was the response like? Oh. And and did you guys yeah. know before you put it out that you were setting something off? We we wondered. Okay. We wondered for a little bit about whether or not to put some kind of uh, advisory. And, and on real quick, this for issue. anyone listening that's not familiar with it, it's it's not graphic at all. No, no. It's, it's it's hot. Um, <laughs> well, but it's not graphic. But you do know what they're doing. It's obvious that there's partner swapping. This is, absolutely. This is what Wendy is absolutely genius at doing Mm -hmm. is to portray something that were it to be handled by almost anyone else would end up being prurient or, you know, let's just go all the way downright pornographic. Mm -hmm. But you have all of these characters and, Tomorrow, there's war, and a lot of them are going to die. So tonight, we party. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and they party for two reasons. One is to just, you know, get the blood going. But also, half of them are not coming back. So let's right. let's make some new babies so that we mm-hmm. can replenish the tribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's not overtly stated in the, in the scene. Uh, right. You know, it's just that kids do result from it. And, but, and, and it's just something that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense, as you say. Um, so there are three or four pages, very, very tastefully done, just teasingly tastefully done, <laughs> of uh, characters going off with other characters. And there's no secret that... Um, well, Keith, it's, it's not it's not all hetero. That's right. Um, I, I want to go back to your the the core of your question, which is, did we know at the time what we were doing or suspect what the re- reaction would be? I think it was more important to me at the time to explore the way that I was growing uh, as a storyteller and also as a person, because um even though, you know, when Richard and I met, we had some pretty liberal attitudes to begin with. Uh, by the time we got to that point in the story of ElfQuest, there was just a, a big expansion going on for both of us, uh, a desire to e- explore more of life, whether we were going to do it metaphorically or or in real life. And, and ElfQuest was a really helpful way to to dip dip the toe in the water of of expanded th- thinking about w- there really are no limits if if you decide that things are good and things things are right and they they harm they do no harm and they are they are just good to do um, then there are no judgments around that you you follow your heart you follow your gut and and i wanted to bring a sense of all of that into these four pages i i was aware that nothing like it had ever been done in comics before right but to me it came naturally uh you know i had doodled stuff like that for years <laughs> <laughs> i have a whole collection of you know <laughs> okay <laughs> 
erotica never, that no one will ever see. Yeah, <laughs> never never mind the the Skywise death pages. I, I have a new right. request <laughs> for what you should scan to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so so it was nothing new to me to draw artwork like that. But it was new to me to just put it out there. Just just let go. Just. Don't judge myself and and don't worry about being judged. Just just do it. Because the you, there is a judgment or lack of judgment in how you present something like that because these mm. are our protagonists doing this. And there's mm-hmm. no negative consequence for it. Mm-hmm. There's no it's not like in a horror movie where as soon as they do it, the slasher <laughs> comes through and kills them. Isn't um, that yeah, isn't that the way? That's, well, and, see, that's another trope that uh right. you know. And there were things in there that it wasn't just about sex. There were, I was so attached to the relationship of Cutter and Lita, the the central relationship in the story. And that Cutter says, go to him and and tells Lita to to go off with Rayek for the night. Yes. Because, because he needs my little mind. Well, did you realize as a kid that Lita and Rayak had been together for a long time before yes. Cutter came? I did, which so was you, all the more reason why yeah. he, I would think he wouldn't do that, that he would be jealous and that he would be, oh. you know, the kind of emotions I had at that time. So yeah. you were, you depicting him as, it's fine. It, mm-hmm. it troubled me as a kid, but it also, I mean, Cutter was so confident Mm-hmm. Uh, both in their love and in himself. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I really, you know, we joke about the, the sexual aspect of it, but there was so much more going on in that scene and it was yeah. really powerful and it really did make you think about family and relationships and kinship and how those things work. And, and here's the thing you asked about, did we, did we have any sense of, of what we were setting ourselves up for by, doing that and publishing that we got a lot of feedback mm-hmm. after you published it after oh, we published yes. it oh, and yes. and i like to boil down the uh quality of the feedback into two letters that we got one was from a mother um who sent us back those four pages mm-hmm. uh, sh- shredded into confetti. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you still have know, that? Did you frame no it and un- put it on the wall? <laughs> no uncertain terms that this was not appropriate for <laughs> comics. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay. And then we got a letter from an 11-year-old boy who wrote a number of things, but the one sentence that sticks in my mind to this day is... Thank you for not talking down to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. and wow. that was the absolute sweet spot of what we hoped to hit with the story and artwork that Wendy had done. And absolutely, at that time, which was around 1983, this was the beginning of fan interaction with creators. Right. Prior to that, yes, you could get a letter printed in Marvel's comics or DC comics. And if you were very, very lucky, Stan would answer you, (laughs) Uh, you know. uh, But uh, this is where our feedback, 
I think, really started to get on a very intimate level with our fans. Uh, And I think one of the reasons that we've been able to last so long as a series in this business, I mean, it's been 40 years, is that we continued to maintain a really strong relationship with our fans and a level of trust. <laughs> and and so the feedback that they give us is so personal. Right. And, you know, they let us know how the story, uh, we have a huge gay following, uh, LGBTQ, I mean, just a- a- every flavor. And right. So many of them have let us know that ElfQuest helped them to find their sexual identity through this character or that character or this relationship. Um, and the joy that that gives us, it's nothing we set out to do. We we just set out to tell the story. But the fact that that the story actually helped people who had experienced marginalization, just like the elves had, uh, helped them to find and accept who they are and and be true to themselves in the world. Well, that's what Elf Quest is all about. That's that's wonderful. Mm. I, I laughed a little bit when you were talking about fan interaction because I've always wondered. Okay, so so I get issue seventeen. <laughs> I, I lock I lock my bedroom door. <laughs> Uh, or or fail to like I close my bedroom door and spend a little time alone with it, mm-hmm. uh, and my dad walks in on me, mm. and I quickly oh, oh, oh. quickly throw it on the ground and pull a pillow over myself, and mm-hmm. I had the TV on to cover whatever noises we'd be making, and there was a <laughs> Tina Turner video playing. Oh, Tina Turner! Well, that's sexy enough as it is. Oh, that, I'm, I'm a good excuse. I'm a good four or five years uh, after the issue is published when mm. I'm reading it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, my, my dad just looks over at Tina Turner with those legs and, uh, uh-huh. shakes his head and walks out of the room. <laughs> 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 uh, but, but years later I start talking about this story on stage and yes. then I decide to share my version of it as it's developed on stage <laughs> with, with you and Richard. I find an address to, to write you an email. And and send you a link to I think me telling the story. What and amazed me. This is me, how we met you. Yeah. yeah. What amazed me is that I get this letter back from Richard. The funniest part was him saying, "Believe me, I spent a few uh, a little extra time with those pages myself." But <laughs> 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 then does every camp be the first person to ever write you and be like, "Yo, I walked into your comics." <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you make friends with every person who writes and? <laughs> <laughs> No, you were, you actually, you were quite the standout, Keith. (laughs) There was just something about your frankness. (laughs) And it's a joy to us that you turned that into a stage routine. I I think the answer has to be that, yes, Mm -hmm. this is, Keith was the first person to actually explicitly. Really? Say, we got lots of letters saying, oh, my God, hubba hubba, how sexy. Oh, this, yeah. that. Nobody right. ever just copped. No, I think, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, always Richard, between the lines, huh? <laughs> yeah. Richard is correct. But then again, you know, many of our fans are shy. Right. And, and, and they, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of subtext in what they write. So we can tell when they're pleased 
by something. And they do they do an awful lot of shipping of our characters. And there's an awful lot of ElfQuest slash fiction and yes. slash fan art out there. Uh-huh. So so we're very pleased that we're, uh, shall we say, stimulating creativity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, how many – I wonder – who has been coupled up more, uh, Cutter and Skywise or um, Kirk and Spock? Well, actually, uh, Cutter and Skywise is is the more obvious. It's actually Cutter and Rayak. That's I, the big, as I was saying it, I was thinking, oh, wow, ship. maybe Rayak, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, you, if, if, if you know how to Google. Oh, God. Right, uh, sorry to wrap this up but I do uh, have some reading to do. <laughs> so um, mm. I am going to jump skip through the rest of, of the history here. You, you, mm. you close up that series. When the next series comes out, uh, Siege of Blue Mountain, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's, it's in a smaller format. Mm-hmm. Um, kicks off right from the beginning with a scene with three female elves having this lovely naked dance that was not overtly sexual. But I remember uh, an issue or two later in the letters column, you guys got some flack for that as well. I don't remember flack. I I do remember people wondering. I thought somebody wrote, and, and I'd have to go back through the issue to find I thought that there was a letter where you had to defend it or someone was saying why it, why it's would you? possible it's entirely possible yeah. because we would get all kinds of feedback and we wanted to be honest mm-hmm. in what we showed of the feedback so if we got 10 letters and nine of them were positive and one of them was negative well we wanted to put that negative one in there too. Sure. Mm-hmm. To, to to balance things out and to present different points of view, just as we were trying to do with the story itself. Yes, because you'd be surprised who reads ElfQuest. Right. Uh, uh, you, you know, very, uh, shall we say, conservative types. Yeah, yeah. Read ElfQuest and read something into it that is entirely not what we intended. Right. But they, they have their own take on it and and then when they find out oh my goodness on facebook you know when uh when someone ultra conservative who happens to follow my page just learns about uh you know the <laughs> fact that that cutter and skywise have rolled in the furs maybe right. once in a while uh and and then i get this oh i will never you know i had no idea i will never consume your product again i had no idea it was so immoral about you know <laughs> that that happens every once in a while on good. facebook yes ah good mm. yes it's, <laughs> it's rather fun don't let the door hit you yeah yeah <laughs> hit you where god splits you <laughs> did, did you happen to see john fogarty having to explain what the song fortunate son was about Hmm. No, no, I know yeah. the song very well. Uh, hmm. It's probably my favorite protest song ever written, and, I, and I'm a mm-hmm. Woody Guthrie fan. But there's yeah. something about Fortunate Son, the, the anger there of, of being the working class that are sent to die. Uh, and, and they were playing it, and I don't know if it was Trump's choice or if somebody was trolling Trump, but it's being played while Trump you know, boards a plane. And Fogarty feels the, the necessity to actually come out and go, 
you know what that song's about, right? And it's Fogarty now. Oh, I heard of you know, this. Yes. It, it's beautiful. And he's explaining <laughs> to Donald that that song's basically about him. Well, that, don't, that that song is about the rich kids that didn't have to go die and that, you know, I'm exactly, not one of them. Exactly. Well, you know, Trump is famous for picking songs without having a clue what the content is. He probably you know, he's been using that. the YMCA. What? <laughs> he probably reads ElfQuest and misunderstands it. I'm telling you. I wouldn't want to know ever in my lifetime that he set eyes on my work. I, I strongly doubt it. I'm sorry for even I, saying that, but now I feel like I've gotten my revenge for you trying oh, to kill Skywise. We're even now. Oh, we can move oh, on. Oh, oh okay. Talk, All right, Gauntlet's been thrown. Needing bleach. <laughs> <laughs> so. Was there a point where you had to stop and decide if you were going to keep going with mm. the Elves? Oh, yeah. You've done so many different series now. You you have a series going currently. Was there more than one occasion where you had to decide? Siege at Blue Mountain made us wonder. Okay. Because that was the era when the the stands were suddenly flooded with every kind of black and white independent comic you could imagine, right. there was there was an independent comics glut, and and suddenly we had to compete for shelf space where we never had to before. And this would be uh, things like I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Absolutely. Mystery Man, Flaming Carrot, mm-hmm. all of um, that stuff. That you, uh, uh, there was a boom in hate. The black and white. Uh, uh, indie comics uh, business. Uh, it was that, great as a consumer, but yeah, I'm sure it was rough on the other end. Oh, yeah. It, was ve- it yeah. made a very and, different market for us. And it affected sales of ElfQuest. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were times over the years when one upheaval or another in the uh, direct market would affect us so greatly uh, early nineties, um, there was a huge implosion, uh, two thirds of the comic shops in the country closed down because wow. of financial, uh, uh, goings on. I'll leave it at that. And, um, w- there was a period where we were deep, deep in debt as oh, a yes. company, mm. but, uh, we, you know, as Churchill, famously has said we kept buggering on <laughs> and uh, uh and and have survived mm-hmm. so those are our kind of market force reasons i'm wondering um creatively if there were ever points where you were like maybe this is the end well uh no i mean the the story had an end right uh, the final quest uh my goodness we 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 set down the treatment for the final quest 20 years really before final quest actually came out incredible so we we had to keep all the secrets of what happened in final quest and build the story towards it for 20 years so we knew how the story was supposed to end right but the struggle of that period of that black and white comics boom I think it was more a question of what format. I mean, should we continue in this smaller size black and white format or what what can we do about this to to make ourselves stand out again? It was 
for a long time, what I remember was just day to day to day. Okay, we've got another deadline. We got to get this book to the printer. Okay, that book, the inks are coming in tomorrow. I, you know, we, we're going to have to do that. I got to edit the script next Friday, uh, and and I think for many years the mo- the sheer momentum mm. of what we were doing carried us along. So we didn't really think about, you know, is this what we want to be doing for the next umpty ump years? Mm-hmm. Right. We just we just did it, and and we just had to keep reinventing how we did it that that was the main thing uh to stay alive to to keep heads above water and uh keep paddling in this uh ever-growing sea of competition we just kept reinventing how we presented it and this is <laughs> it's it's amazing to think about the the changes and what happened during mm. those 40 years i mean oh yes uh, you know as i pointed out earlier i mean you guys started pre-internet finished the first several series pre-internet mm-hmm. now i can go read all of your stuff online mm-hmm. um, well and and richard really deserves credit for that because he in a sense rescued ElfQuest by making the decision to put it online like that do you want yeah to, there well to, there there was a period where uh we were not publishing any new material and there were reasons for that that we uh, agreed to. Um, but I learned a lesson a couple of times that if you, if you don't have a presence, if you are a comic title and you don't come out every month or every two months or on some dependable regular schedule, people forget you very, very quickly. Right. And so I thought, my God, we're not publishing any new stuff. Mm. And this was, you know, going on two, three, four years. Mm. Um, I need to make ElfQuest available. So I began a year-long program of scanning every comic we ever did and just uploading it to the ElfQuest.com website. And and you're literally feeding them, like hand-feeding things into a scanner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Page, One page at a time. One page at a this time. That's why, it took, that's why it took wow. over a year. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and it was funny because I let some people know about this. And this was when Marvel and DC were just beginning to explore the idea of putting comics on and you know, trying to monetize that. And uh, Marvel had some comics for 99 cents and DC did right. the same. And I investigated it as best I could. This was just another example of, oh, I don't know how to do this. I better learn how to do this. Right. And I came to the conclusion that the the hoops I had to go through in order to make half a cent if somebody bought one of the issues just was not worth it. And it was far more important that somebody looking for ElfQuest could find it and read it and not worrying about not worry about PayPal or a credit card or any right. of that crap. R- remain a uh, fan. Get, get that uh, content. So so I put it all up there for free. And the return on that investment it w- was not financial, but it was hugely positive. It, it gained us new readers, droves of new readers. Yeah. And, and it uh, put 
Elfquest back into the consciousness of the zeitgeist, and uh, it was possibly one of the smartest things that Richard has done in our entire careers. It, it uh, rejuvenated the title and made it possible for do, to do everything that came afterwards. And, and yet and, another reason why it's great that you guys were independent, because that you mm. weren't going to be able to do that if you had published this through someone else. Well, we like to say we're independent, but we're not isolationist because we did partner with Marvel right. to reprint. We did partner with DC to do both reprint and new stuff. And now we're partnered with Dark Horse and they did the, the, the new series at the time, Final Quest. They're doing mm-hmm. beautiful reprint books. Now they're doing Stargazer's Hunt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, schedules have been thrown totally into a cocked hat because of COVID. But we're still with them. We love working with them. And uh, we hope to be with them as long as uh, we all like each other. And this is something just popped into my mind, Keith. When you asked us about uh, uh, our period when uh, we worked with other artists and writers and so forth, uh, yes, we did work with other artists. And um, did you know that through your connection with Spike and uh, Spike and Mike, Spike and Mike, and Mike right? You, through your connection with Spike and Mike, you had a connection with ElfQuest that you didn't know about? What is this? Brandon McKinney. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, is he one of the animators? Yes, he did cha- uh, Chainsaw Bob. <laughs> okay. Brandon McKinney drew almost our entire uh, series called Shards. It, oh, wow. And uh, he is now working in animation. Uh, he is uh, a director and storyboard artist. He was he worked on um, uh, Harley Quinn, okay. the Harley Quinn show. And now he's uh, storyboarding a new Scooby-Doo movie. That's great. And, and Chainsaw Bob was Chainsaw a Bob. masterpiece. He's a, he's a performance art who basically <laughs> chops people up with a chainsaw. But, you know, artistically, yes. he makes the Venus de Milo just, you know, using a real person. <laughs> Brandon has this. Brandon is this loveliest man who has this this twisted side to him that you would never guess. All of my friends, uh, Darren and Christy. Hello. If you're listening, uh, <laughs> make these horrible, bloody horror movies. And they're the gentlest, <laughs> sweetest people. All my friends that love that kind of just gore culture are delightful. <laughs> well, see, you can you can include me in that list because yes. because in, in addition to doing what I do and having had the influence that I I had, I am also a horror fan. Excellent. So, uh, uh, my favorite writer is Edgar Allan Poe. Ah, we're gonna. We're going to start wrapping things up here, and I and I want to talk to you about Poe. Ah. Before we jump to that, uh, so you guys celebrated 40 years in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. It Final was... Quest got the big finale, yep. and you guys went on a national and international victory lap tour. That was fun. We arranged it so that the final issue of Final Quest was released 40 years to the exact day. To the day. Wow. To the day from when ElfQuest number one first appeared in 1978. That's awesome. And 
we got so many people wanting interviews. We got so many invitations to convention. We just had to do this. We we went for the first time, and I hope not the last, to Angoulême, the big comic festival over in France. Yes. Um, met many wonderful people, including our new French publisher. Uh, we did... Oh, I don't know how many conventions we did that year, but it was just an outpouring of fan love reaction. I know the reaction was was bigger than I think we even possibly anticipated because, it could have been. Because the climax to Final Quest, the climax to Cutter's hero's journey, this 40-year thing that we've right. been working on, we wondered... You know, is our fans going to hate this? Is this too controversial? Is this too too down? Is this too grim? Is it, and yet, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the feedback we got said, "I was sad. I ugly cried for an hour, <laughs> but it was perfect. Mm-hmm. The ending yeah. was perfect." Yeah. Oh, how how gratifying for you! Oh. Yeah, because, and the funniest thing is, when I when I drew that last page, I could just feel ElfQuest lifting off my shoulders and out of the top of my head. It just, it just lifted up and flew away. I had wow. accomplished what I set out to do, and I had been carrying it for forty years, and it just lift. I could feel it literally lift like a weight off my shoulders. It was, it was a very strange experience. It was done when it was done. It was done when it was done. Yeah. Uh, and then the very next year, you are inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame uh, mm. at Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah, that that came really out of the blue. We knew about the Eisners for many, many years. Right. Because they're the, the Comic-Con equivalent of the Oscars. And in 2018, actually a book that I had written about Wendy's artwork had been nominated for an Eisner. Didn't win, but... Uh, but still, it was great it was, it was It was nominated. great to be there. It was great to be nominated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then we got the, the word that we'd been nominated for induction into the Hall of Fame. And I thought, oh, crap. Look at that, you know, all the names that we were up against. Yes. So uh, we had no clue. And, and I still owe several of the people who run the convention. I owe them dirty tricks because they knew. <laughs> and, and they just kept it from us, you know, for, for days until the ceremony came up. And, uh, you know, and I'd be and I'd be talking to them on, in all innocence, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not expecting we'll win because look at who we're up against. But it's, this is just wonderful. And they would just go along with it. And, uh-huh. <laughs> string me along That's they're going to get theirs <laughs> <laughs> so but elf quest isn't done what 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 no. is tell me about stargazer's hunt um well now see damn it because richard <laughs> wouldn't richard wouldn't let me kill skywise <laughs> now i've got to tell his story <laughs> do you cutters do you know the end of Stargazer's Hunt and will we get it 40 years from now? Stargazer's Hunt <laughs> no, has it won't no take 40 end. years. It has no end. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. ElfQuest was and is a love story. And 
people immediately say, oh, it's the love story of Cutter and Lita. That is a love story within it. But the story of Elfquist is the relationship between Cutter and Skywise because it's the relationship between Wendy and me. Elfquist is, you know, to whatever degree of uh, fidelity, autobiographical. The problems that the elves solve are problems that we've faced. Maybe we morph them a little bit. But at the end of Final Quest, Cutter goes into spirit. And his quest, his hero's journey is done. Mm -hmm. But Skywise is left behind. Mm. And his story is not finished. There are Mm. aspects to the relationship, some of them deep and very troubling, that he has not found resolution Mm -hmm. with or to. And so we realized that if Elfquest, Cutter's hero journey, was was the great uh, symphony, we needed a coda. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Stargazer's Hunt, it's eight issues. The first four are out. We don't know what the schedule is because Dark Horse was affected by COVID, same as we all were. But it's not going to take 40 years. Um, we got we got four more issues. We got four more issues. We hope that it wraps up in 2021. Well, and and yet it won't wrap up because there are more ideas for more stories beyond that. I'm working with my <laughs> I'm working with my soul brother Sonny Strait, uh, who's the voice of Krillin on Dragon Ball Z, but he's also a magnificent uh, comic artist, and nice. and uh, so he's doing the art finishes and the colors for me on uh, Stargazer's Hunt. And Sonny has tons of ideas for what can come next. And uh, we love that. Right. Yeah. But just as, just as ElfQuest was Wendy's master opus, that when it was done, she felt it lift away from her because she f- got that thing done, got it finished. Since she's Cutter, she could feel that at the end of Final Quest. I'm Skywise. So <laughs> this story needs to finish such that his journey, his questions are answered. Yeah. What happens after that remains to be seen. There's a whole big wide world out there of stories. We've got some wonderful people coming up with ideas that we're going to want to work with, but... Um, our involvement will be more advisory yes. than actual yeah. down in the trenches yes. as it has been for 40 plus years because, yeah. hey, I think we've earned a little uh, <laughs> for sure. R&R. And, and it, it does, it makes me think a little bit of, of Star Wars or The Matrix, um, these places where you create this world and then you get to play in it. You know, you, you tell the original story in it, but you've still got the world there. To have some mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the people who grew up reading it become the people who carry on the story. Right. Um, this is I, I'm this is definitely going to be a double episode, which I love. <laughs> Thank you for, for being willing to talk with me so long. Um, oh, we I'm, can yak and yak and yak. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also love Edgar Allan Poe and have used Poe to introduce my daughter to poetry. Really? Um, what are you doing with Mask of the Red Death, which you've been playing with forever? 
in different yes. ways. Yes. Um, well, uh, I have loved Poe since I was a child. And um, I, w- I want to tell this story as tightly as I can. In 2007, we were at a convention in the Midwest. And uh, we, uh, we were at our table and down at the other end of the uh, of the aisle was a group of uh, young girls who were big fans of manga, uh, which is the Japanese comic, Mm -hmm. manga and anime. And uh, they were fans of what's called yaoi. Uh, Yaoi is a Japanese word that that very simply, it's more complex than this, but, but translating it very simply, it means boys love. It's, you know, uh, homoerotica, that sort of thing. And so I went, I went down there to them and I said, what would you young ladies think about a yaoi that was based on Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death? <laughs> and you could hear the scream all over the convention center. <laughs> so they, they were familiar with Mask of the Red Death. They were familiar with Poe. They were familiar with really? Mask of the Red Death, and and uh, their little minds just immediately latched onto it. And and that was what encouraged me that yes, this this is something that could be done and could be well received, because at the time back in two thousand and seven, uh, uh, young women were the primary market for uh, the manga that you would see in Barnes and Nobles and and Borders, I think, was still mm. going at the time. Right. So uh, they had huge manga sections, and, and it was primarily driven by young women. So uh, I wanted to do something for this audience. So I started a webcomic that, that became a 400-page graphic novel adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's eight page short story right. of Mask of the Red Death. And what's what's really phenomenal about it is that the villain of the story, as conceived in my adaptation, was based on Donald Trump. Oh wow. And, and as of course you know, Mask of the Red Death is about a pandemic. <laughs> so, so back in 2007 There there was something a little prescient going on associating Trump with a pandemic. And what Uh, are you doing? And then why am I reading the words theatrical musical thriller? Because that's... (laughs) Because that's what's happening right now. Um, another love of mine is musical theater, and I'm especially fond of dark musicals like Sweeney Todd and Great. Jekyll and Hyde. And I, uh, through a series of marvelous serendipities, met a young c- composer named Gregory Neighbors, who knew about ElfQuest, who had grown up reading ElfQuest. So I was able to interest him in Mask of the Red Death, and I said, this thing is a musical. This isn't just a graphic novel. There is something about this story that could be translated into a dark musical like Phantom of the Opera or Jekyll and Hyde, and Gregory liked that idea. And um, we've just been working on it for about 10 years now. Oh, wow. Uh, and and actually, we're right on time. Uh, in doing my research, I found out that most musicals can take up to fifteen to twenty years to okay. to get to get themselves off the ground. So I had no idea. We're right on time. Jekyll and Hyde took seventeen years before it hit Broadway. 
And now when this is released to the public, everyone will assume that you wrote it during this period of, of plague and Trump. I know. Won't that be interesting? Because, you know, there'll be there'll be uh, information out about it that that reveals that the graphic novel uh, actually came out uh, originally in 2007. Right. See, this is this is the curse, I think, of of your ideas. What? You have ideas ahead of their time. <laughs> and then you got to sit and wait ElfQuest, for them. ElfQuest was about the marginalization mm-hmm. of groups that are hated by other larger groups. Mm-hmm. And here we are. 40 years later. 40 years later, muddling our way through a time when we thought that things like racism and 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 such would have gone to the dust heap of history and it's worse than it was when we started. Right. Uh, I'm so glad Richard just brought that up, Keith, because uh, you know, you're a young guy. Oh, am I? Thank you. <laughs> and you have no idea. I mean, when we Elfquest was born in the hippy dippy uh, Vietnam uh, protest, Nixon, you know, Watergate uh, protest and and free love and all of that, uh, environment and overpopulation and make the world right. And everybody was fighting for for the good things that, that we needed to preserve. And it was an exciting, exciting time to be alive, but never in our wildest dreams did Richard and I imagine that in 2020, the very issues that people were protesting about, racism, homophobia, all of that, we never dreamed it would be worse now than it was then. And so, and so you know, that was 40 years before, and, and uh, Mask of the Red Death will prove to be 20 or however many years <laughs> Before and they'll say, "Oh no, no, no! You, you, you were inspired by Trump and COVID." No, no, no. We were 15 years ahead of that curve, right? You do that. You have these ideas, and they're prescient. Well, I, anyway, we'll have a ticket waiting for you. And, thank you. Ah, and, I can't, I can't wait to see it. And I also love musical theater. I have since I was tiny and and watched it musicals with my mom. Oh, that's great. Um. Well, Go ahead. Well, by the time Mask is out, your your beautiful little daughter will be a f- full-grown young lady. She's such a Winna Will fan, by the way. Really? Oh, my God. Well, she always loves a villain. Uh-huh. Girl after <laughs> my own heart. Yes. Yeah, just treat her well or you might find yourself in trouble. All right. Her favorites are uh, Winna Will and uh, another is Ursula. From oh, uh, yes. Little Mermaid, yeah, and yes. she, she has many objections to the Little Mermaid. She likes a she likes a mermaid that is a little tougher um, <laughs> than Ariel, but she well, does love Ursula. The more I hear about your daughter, the more I like her. All right, uh, well, I'll send her. You know, I've been locked in a house with her for seven months. So <laughs> you guys can take her for a little bit, just for a little bit, and then I'll want her back. Um, thank you guys so much for spending all this time with me. This has been a fan's dream come. True. The next best thing to actually getting to sit and drink a cup of coffee with you somewhere. Um, well, we and, will and do that that'll too happen. someday. That will absolutely happen. But I yeah. really appreciate you doing the podcast. And I'm so excited uh, to see the new projects come to fruition. Um, and, and I'd love to have you back on. Uh, 
down the road in a year to talk about what, what those projects are doing out there in the world. So thank you. You've got a date. Wendy and Richard. Well, it has been our pleasure and a hell of a lot of fun. Excellent. Uh, let me also, again, uh, thank the Sacramento Comedy Spot for existing and encourage everybody to go check them out. Uh, I have been your host, Keith Lowell Jensen. My producer is Joe Honor. The original art for the podcast was also done by Joe Honor. Our editor and audio engineer is Jack Matrenga. Joe and Jack are with Hyperpixel. Hyperpixel is a production company with a focus on dig- digital marketing and e-commerce, offering daily management of your website, social media accounts, and digital marketing campaigns. Our original music was done by DJ Real. Coming up soon, we have Jay Tholen, an independent video game designer, creator of Dropsy the Clown. And I can, uh, me and Jay can tell you about the time that they dressed me up as Dropsy and took me around to all the press junkets for video game designers. I got to see a whole nother world there. I have another of my favorite comic book writer authors, Jeffrey Brown, coming on soon. Uh, best known for Vader's Little Princess, Jedi Academy, and my favorite, Clumsy. Please follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Keith Lowell and follow the podcast at KLJ podcast. And uh, let me make up for something that I failed to do. Wendy and Richard, where is the best place for people to follow you and get all that elf quest goodness? Uh, the best place is on Facebook. There's an ElfQuest group. There are several, but there is a, a big ElfQuest group. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. You can find those free comics at ElfQuest.com. And that's where we are. All right. Great talking to you guys. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Keith.